Several years ago, I was asked by an attorney to be an expert witness in a lawsuit against a veterinarian he was defending. And when I told him I'd be interested in doing it, he said he had to ask me a few questions before I could serve. And he spent the next 45 minutes grilling me about my professional life. He asked me questions like, well, so where'd you go to vet school? Where was your ranking in your class? Do you have any postdoctorate training? Do you have any specialty training? Where had you practiced? Who had you practiced with? How much experience had you had with a particular um, condition that's a part of this case? How many have you treated successfully? What's the standard of care for those animals? Had I had any lawsuits against me? What was the result of those lawsuits? Did I know the veterinarian being sued? Did I know the people suing him? Have I ever done any work for him? And then after asking me these questions, he told me that he'd already checked with the state board to see if there was any um, complaints against me. And he'd called veterinarians around the state to see what my reputation was. Um, this lawyer was trying to establish my credibility as a vet. He was trying to establish my reliability, my believability, so that he could feel confident that the information that I gave him was trustworthy. And my, if my professional credibility was in question or it looked like I had any biases, he wouldn't use me as a witness because he wouldn't be able to trust that what I said was reliable. He wanted to make sure I was going to be a, a credible witness to support his case. He knew the opposing attorney would certainly <laughs> question my credibility, right? Because if there was anything in my background that would cast doubt on my testimony for the defense, that would support his case. He, he would try to discredit me. He'd say, well, why should we believe this schmo veterinarian from Yakima? I mean, what does this guy know? He's from Yakima. <laughs> um, well, the Apostle Paul faced a situation where his credibility as apostle was being questioned uh, by people in Corinth. And because his credibility as an apostle was being questioned, Paul knew that these people were casting doubt on the credibility of the gospel itself, just like an attorney would try to cast, cast doubt on the truthfulness of an expert witness, um, questioning the witness's credibility. Now, trouble like this uh, was nothing new to Paul, especially in Corinth. And after planning that church, he dealt with a steady flow of issues that we read about in 1 Corinthians. Factions had developed over the popularity of different preachers. Sexual immorality, the worst kind, was practiced. People in the church were suing each other in the public court system. The Lord's Supper was corrupted with gluttony and drunkenness, and there was arguments about who had the most um, desirable spiritual gifts. And the church was really self-focused. It was really worldly. And Paul had written multiple letters and had made special trips to Corinth to deal with them. He rebuked, he exhorted, he encouraged, he instated church discipline. He repeated the gospel over and over, all to deal with the self-centeredness of this church and their poor understanding of the gospel. And while some people did hear his exhortation, uh, many were unwilling to change, leaving Paul really unpopular and under constant criticism within the church. And now there was a new infiltration of men who were questioning Paul's credibility and they were causing division in the church. And they were telling people to not believe that Paul was truly an apostle and his message was incredible. They questioned Paul's method, method of uh, church discipline, saying that he was lording his authority over people. They questioned the integrity of his word because of a change in his plans to visit them. They said he was a coward when dealing with people in person, but willing to be really bold in his letters. They questioned his honesty in handling 
financial gifts for the church. And maybe worst of all, they question his sanity <laughs> because of the radical nature of his ministry. They thought he was suffering from some kind of religious hysteria based on his testimony of seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, having an ecstatic vision, and, and just his crazy way of life and ministry. And so Paul wrote them a letter that we call 2 Corinthians to defend his credibility as an apostle so that people wouldn't fall under the influence of these false teachers and so that he would uphold the credibility of the gospel. And you know, as Christians, we should be concerned about our credibility uh, as representatives of the gospel because people, especially non-believers, they do judge the credibility of our message by how we live our lives as followers of Christ. Just like the lawyer was concerned that my professional life would not discredit my testimony in court. So what does a credible witness of the gospel look like? So my goal today is to use Paul's defense of his ministry in 2 Corinthians as an example of what a credible witness of the gospel looks like. So let's see what, uh, let's see what Paul has to say for us. Let's see what the Holy Spirit has to say for us. First, we're going to look at Paul's claims that his critics were trying to discredit. What were Paul's claims that were in, in question? And the first claim is this, that the gospel was God's message of reconciliation through Christ alone. God's message of reconciliation through Christ alone. You'd think the Corinthians would know the gospel. <laughs> I mean, Paul had been there. He, they called themselves Christians, but Paul had already had such a painful history with them. Um, it just suggested they didn't, they didn't grasp it. And because of the doubt being cast on his credibility and um, his fear that the gospel was being questioned, Paul felt like he had to uh, restate the gospel message. And he does it here several times if you look at verses 5, uh, 18 through 21. And he focuses on God as the source of the plan of reconciliation and Christ as the means. In 5.18 he says that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 519, he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he says, for our sake, he made him to be no sin, uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is being really clear about his message here. Reconciliation is through Christ, and that's God's plan. The second claim is that uh, Paul and Timothy were God's official messengers of the gospel, God's official messengers. So Paul's making a connection here that the gospel message of God's plan of reconciliation through Christ um, is God's message and that they were God's messengers. And so for each of the statements on reconciliation through Christ that Paul has, he also has claims to being God's messengers. And he says in 518, um, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, Paul and Timothy, uh, our ministers. God entrusted us with a message of reconciliation. Paul says that he and Timothy are entrusted messengers. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ in verse 20. And Paul's saying that they're Christ's official statesmen, official spokesmen, if you will, of like a representative of a king. And he uses this word implore, meaning beg. I'm begging you for Christ. In verse 6-1, he says again, working together in him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul says that he and Timothy are working with God to bring his message to them. 
And knowing that his adversaries were likely Jewish, he adds a messianic prophecy in verse 2 from from Isaiah 49 here, as if God is saying this directly to the Corinthians, just like God was speaking to Israel through Isaiah. Paul confidently states that his messianic prophecy is fulfilled now in the work of Christ. Paul says, behold, this is the favorable time. Behold, this is the day of salvation. Paul is paralleling his position as God's messenger with that of Isaiah's position as a prophet, God's Old Testament messenger. So Paul is making two really bold claims. Reconciliation is from God through Christ, and I'm God's messenger of that. What Paul is really defining here is Christian witness. Christian witness. You can write this down. A Christian witness is God's messenger proclaiming God's message, the gospel. What is a Christian witness? It's God's messenger proclaiming God's message. In John 1, John the Baptist is the first Christian witness in the New Testament. John the Baptist told the Jews that he'd come to testify about the Christ. Testify. Witness. And then in 129, when we saw Jesus, he proclaimed who he was and what he was going to do. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He was God's messenger with God's message. Now, if you use your imagination a little bit, you could insert the question from Paul's opponents right here, uh, just like an opposing attorney (laughs) would ask an expert witness in a trial. They would say, Paul, why in the world should we believe you? Why should we believe that the gospel is God's message and you're God's messenger? Give us some proof. We have reason to believe you're not. We're questioning that. And it's a fair question, really. For those of us who are churched, maybe we think that's an unreasonable question. But here we have people who are stuck between Paul and Paul's opponents, right? They're they're trying to figure out who's more credible, Paul or these other men. Paul is saying, I'm God's messenger with God's message. And the false teachers are saying, Paul shouldn't be listened to. Don't listen to him. He's untrustworthy. He's unreliable. And maybe worst of all, He's crazy. He's nuts. Look at him. Therefore, his message is equally unreliable and maybe crazy. Listen to us instead. If you heard those things unchurched, what would you think? Would it seem believable to you? And so Paul uh, responds to his critics. He begins to defend his credibility to give his credentials, so to speak, that he and Timothy are credible witnesses of the gospel, and he does so really boldly. If you look at verse 3, he says this, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. That sounds pretty confident. I have done nothing. Paul is saying, I have done nothing in my ministry to make you doubt that I am God's messenger. And this is God's message. I have done nothing to make you doubt that I am a credible witness. And then in verse 4, he says this, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And this, this really sounds like Paul's boasting, right? Some people who read 2 Corinthians really struggle with it because it seems like Paul's boasting all the time about who he is. But we need to think about two things before we pass judgment on Paul and his ego. The first is... The only reason Paul's defense is in Scripture 
is because God decided it would be there. The Holy Spirit is using Paul's boasting to actually tell us something. And Paul knows very well not to boast. I mean, he's already told these particular Corinthians, if let no one boast, uh, let them boast in the Lord. If anyone boasts, let them boast in the Lord. And the second point is we really kind of need, uh, need to reword verse 4 from your translations. It, it might be better said, we commend ourselves in every way as servants of God. Um, now, Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants, and it's a word that's usually used um, to describe a servant of a, of a king. And the word commend here is, means to be consistent with. So what, what Paul is really saying is that his claim, his claim to be a credible witness is consistent with his actions as a servant of God in every way. Paul's basically saying, I'm going to show you I'm a messenger of God by showing you how I've been a servant of God. And this is critical to understand because Paul's opponents in Corinth have always been self-centered. <laughs> They're self-glorifying. Um, self-promoting. We've already listed the problems that came from the church. I mean, they were selfish people. And Paul's argument is this. People who serve themselves are not credible witnesses of the gospel. People who serve God as God's servants, as God's messenger, they're the ones who are actually credible witnesses. So what does that credible witness look like then? Well, Paul takes verses 4 through 10 to describe that. And in these verses, Paul is going to describe, using his ministry as an example, kind of his autobiography, if you will, of what a selfless servant of God looks like. A selfless servant, because that selfless servant is one who is a credible witness of the gospel. And this is Paul's defense in a nutshell. Only a credible witness endures in suffering for God's purposes. He endures by God's gifts of grace. And he endures through, or maybe better put, regardless of the judgment of men and the standards of the world. And we're going to walk through each one of those. So let's look at Paul's first point of defending his credibility. Paul, as God's servant, who was a credible witness, endured in suffering for God's purposes to spread the gospel. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hungers. I mean, that's a lot of pretty extreme trials, isn't it? Paul had suffered through all of these trials as a selfless servant of God. And he neatly lists these in three groups of three, each group describing trials that happened in each of the various facets of his uh, ministry. And the first group, of, um, first group of trials is in verse 4. These are the trials of life in general. Trials of life in general, afflictions, hardships, calamities. These are general sufferings that are common to men, trials that anybody might face, disease, loss of a loved one, natural disasters, financial collapse, conflicts in relationships. These are the trials that we frequently talk about as God's means of sanctifying us. We look at much of what we experience in daily life in this category. And in Paul's life as a selfless servant, 
It would be things that are recorded in Acts, like shipwreck that happened to him on his way to Rome, conflicts with ministry partners like he had with John Mark or Barnabas, um, or that he mentions with Peter in Galatians, or being left alone to defend himself in court that he mentions in 2 Timothy. Pastor John has covered these trials really well, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. But Paul could have faced these challenges with a poor me, selfish attitude. Poor me. But instead he endured those trials knowing, as he's taught us, that God is going to use those to grow our faith, grow them into Christ-likeness, and actually to prepare him for the other trials he's going to face, <laughs> which he's going to mention next. And the next set of trials is those first three words in verse 5. And these were trials of evangelism, trials in evangelism, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These were sufferings that were common to Paul's evangelism and missionary act, uh, efforts. It seemed like nearly everywhere Paul went, there was opposition to his gospel ministry. If we look at the book of Acts, we know he was stoned in Lystra, right? He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was beaten in Philippi. Um, he was imprisoned in Rome. His ministry was the cause of riots. He was ejected from towns, harassed by Jewish and Gentile opponents everywhere he went. Paul endured these trials, though, with little concern for his own well-being, knowing that the gospel might be not well accepted. Paul was given his commission by Christ. Jesus said that he would suffer for his sake. He knew that there was a potential for suffering. But Paul's major concern was God's concern, that the gospel message be shared with the lost. And the last triplet is at the end of verse 5, these, these three sufferings, and those are the trials of serving others. The trials of serving others. In labors, sleepless nights, hunger. These were voluntary costs of Paul to serve others. And maybe more specifically, the suffering associated with discipling others. Paul was willing to selflessly toil, to teach, admonish, edify, encourage, to lose sleep either by working really long days or by staying up and praying for people long nights. He told the Colossians that he never ceased to pray for him. He was always interceding for him. He told the Thessalonians, um, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul worked to support his own ministry. Paul denied his own needs so that others could hear the gospel and so that they could grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ through discipleship. Now, Paul's opponents, they'd avoid suffering like this at any cost unless it gave them some kind of glory from other people. But Paul says that he endured suffering for the glory of God as a sign of his credible witness. He was a credible witness, enduring suffering for God's purpose, to grow him into Christ-likeness, to spread the gospel, and to disciple others. Next, in verses 6 and 7, we see Paul's second point of defense for his credibility as God's witness. Paul endured as a selfless servant of God, not by his own strength or natural talents, but by God's gifts of grace. By God's gifts of grace. and um, These gifts are the fruit of the Spirit, 
the word of God and the full armor of God, and we're going to go through each one of those. And each of those are introduced by this preposition, by. And he writes, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness in the right hand <laughs> and for the left. Paul could take no credit for any success or for any way that he ever endured as being a messenger of God. His power, his strength, his ability to serve came from the one he served. We see in verse 6 this purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the connection of this list with the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, patience, self-control. That's the fruit that comes to those who receive the gift of the Spirit. And these were God's gifts of grace that resulted in Paul's ability to winsomely share the gospel, even with the worst opponents, to walk boldly into trials, to exhibit unnatural composure in the face of any other opposition, to remain steadfast as he discipled young believers, considering what he was even dealing with the Corinthians as we speak, and to show incredible joy in the face of it all. He couldn't muster that kind of ability on his own. And, his, and if he tried to, it'd be short-lived, wouldn't it? Because only a selfless servant of God who relies on God's gifts of grace and the Spirit would endure through all that. The second gift of grace we see is the Word of God. The Word of God, and Paul says here, in, by, truthful, by truthful speech, and the power of God. God's truth came through his word. And we all know 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is, this is, this is God's word is useful for all of that. And there's power in God's word. Paul says to the Romans that God's word is the power for salvation. People are saved through God's word. No other way. The writer of Hebrews said the word of God was like a two-edged sword with the ability to discern the thoughts in the hearts of men. You know, Paul was talented with rhetoric. He was no idiot. Paul could debate. Um, he had been well instructed as a Jew, as a Pharisee. But Paul used God's word as his guide to disciple, encourage, exhort, and instruct. God's word was foolishness to the Corinthians. And he'd already written to them in 1 Corinthians about the dangers of worldly wisdom, which was the result of their own human pride. But a selfless servant of God would rely on God's word, God's truth, including the gospel message, not his own to endure. The third gift of grace that we see is a gift related to the word of God, and that's the full armor of God, full armor of God. And and Paul writes in verse 7, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And that's really similar to the description of the full armor of God that he gives in Ephesians 6. When he says, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What did Paul have on his own? <laughs> to be able to battle against these forces. 
nothing. And was he going to experience these forces as a servant of God? Certainly. Had he tried to rely on his own, he'd have failed miserably. He had to rely on uh, that full armor, faith, righteousness, hope. Things that only come through the gospel. Paul's endurance as a servant of God lay not in his own strength, but in God's gifts of grace. Just to show that God's power was made perfect (laughs) in Paul's weakness, as he writes later to the Corinthians. So Paul's saying a credible witness of the gospel selflessly relies on God's gifts of grace and not his own power to serve. And the last defense that we're going to look at here is um, an interesting one, the way Paul writes this. And we see this long list of contrasts in verses 8 through 10, listing these contrasts of, that begin with this preposition through, and it might be better thought of as, as regardless of. Paul endured as a selfless servant, regardless of the judgments of men and the standards of the world. Regardless of the judgments of men and the standards of the world. And he writes, starting in verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet we were killed, we're not killed, as, as sorrowful but always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You look at these contrasts and you think, well, so where are you at, Paul? (laughs) I mean, where are you? Are you good or are you bad? What's your condition? What's your spiritual condition? What's your emotional condition? What's your your physical condition? But he's not describing that as as a reality to him. He's saying, this is the way the world looks at me, and this is the way people judge us by looking at our particular ministry. The contrast that we see in verses 8 and part of 9 are the, are the extremes of social acceptance, honor, dishonor, worthy of contempt, worthy of praise, popular, unpopular. The second contrasts are in 9 and 10, and those are extremes in physical and emotional conditions. Paul's making a really big statement by listening, listing these this way. He's making a statement about how he views men's judgments about him and about the world's standards for contentment. In his other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, he wrote this, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Tim Keller, in his great little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You want to read a nice little short book, 44 pages? The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says this about these verses. He says, Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me, frankly. Paul's ego was of no more concern to him than any other part of his body, which he was totally willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Paul was willing to sacrifice any thoughts that would lift him up by the uh, accolades of men 
indifferent about those things. Paul didn't care if anybody thought he was crazy, as these people have uh, accused him of. He didn't care if he didn't fit worldly standards. He, he tells the Corinthians in this very letter, we read it this morning, if we are beside ourselves, if we look like we're nuts, in other words, if we're beside ourselves, uh, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Paul says, if I do ministry and it appears radical and crazy, that's between me and God. But listen to my words. See my actions. That's for you. You can decide. So Paul's only identity and greatest joy lie in his position as God's servant, God's messenger with God's message, and the blessings that came with that position. So the judgments of men, the world's standards of contentment were totally irrelevant to him. God's credibility as a witness of the gospel was his selfless service regardless of how men in the world judged him. So in those verses, Paul defends his credibility as a witness of the gospel in suffering by God's gifts of grace and regardless of what other people think and the standards of the world. Paul finishes his defense with this plea, beautiful plea. In verses 11 through 13, he says, for we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. The Greek in that is just really beautiful. It's like I have opened my mouth really wide <laughs> to tell you, and my heart is basically just as wide. He's saying what I have said is an indicator of how much we've really loved you. And then he says, you're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. I've done nothing to make you think that I'm anything more than I am. The only restrictions here is you're listening to false teachers. Now, consider what I've said. As a father, saying to someone who loves you, he says that, in return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. These, these verses, this book, has been really convicting me. I've been reading and studying 2 Corinthians for a long time. It's a beautiful, beautiful biography. It's unlike most epistles. It's a beautiful biography of Paul, a selfless servant of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has allowed him to give his testimony of what that looks like. Something that saddens me when I talk to unchurched non-believers, and there's a lot of unchurched non-believers out there, don't think that there isn't. Something that really saddens me is the answer to this question that I give them is, how do you perceive Christians in your experience? Or sometimes I ask, what do you think about people who go to church? I've had opportunity, a lot of opportunity to ask that in my job. And very few unchurched non-believers answer that they perceive Christians as people who have a radical love for Christ and are credible witnesses of that love. I'd love to tell you a couple of stories. Can I? I'm gonna tell, tell you one story that um, I have an elder's permission to do this, <laughs> just so you know. 
I, when I started working at a clinic in, uh, in Ellensburg, Washington, a guy bought this horse in with a big laceration on his shoulder. And so I'm suturing up this cut on this horse's shoulder, and my technician, out of the blue, says, and she knew, she knew I'd been an elder at this church. She knew it before I started working there. She said, you know, I think church people are hypocrites. Just like, boom, drop the bomb. Church people are hypocrites. And I said, yeah. She said, yeah. You know, I've known some church people, and they're this, and they're that. And they're the other thing. So I said, do you ever wonder why people actually even go to church? And she gave me three reasons. And three reasons that we may find people in this church actually give. Been a part of my family life. Always gone to church. Um, makes me feel a little bit holier about myself. And it's for those really sad people that have nothing else to hang their life on. And I said, you know what? Those are three reasons why people go to church. That's for sure. I said, you know why we're supposed to go to church? And she looked at me kind of funny and she said, no, I don't. I said, we're supposed to go to church so that we can worship God for the gift that we've received in Christ. We're supposed to learn more about who Christ is. And then we're supposed to go out in the world. And we're supposed to share that with the rest of the world. That's why people go to church. You know what she said? Well, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> I've never heard anything like that before. And I said, well, let me share something with you. And the rest of our career together were these talks about the gospel who Christ was, and why in the world I would ever believe in something like that. She's been to this church twice and always asks, oh man, I need to get back to your church. I need to come back. Yeah, you do. If this gets recorded and she hears it, yeah, you do. <laughs> Thanks for letting me do that, Josh. I was listening to an Alistair Begg sermon, and he quoted the results of a survey uh, taken at Stanford University, and the question was asked, how do you characterize American evangelical Christianity? How do you characterize American evangelical Christianity? And the consensus was that it was a political action movement committed to advancing Judeo-Christian morals in America. Sounds like they've never experienced a credible witness to me. It also really convicts me because I don't want people to see me as a political, moral activist. I want people to hear the gospel so that their lives would be changed. Maybe that's the way to change things and give glory to Christ. You know, I've come to the conclusion that the wrong application for most people the wrong application for these verses is to say, go out there and do something radical for God. Let's go do something awesome. Let's show the world how crazy and selfless we are for the sake of Christ. That's a bad application. And I'll tell you what, it's a common one. It's an incredibly common one. It's spoken from pulpits, in Sunday schools, 
Christian colleges, discipleship schools, missionary conferences. And it's wrong because the motivation is wrong. People will do things radical for Christ to prove to the world that they're sold out. Look at me. I'm sold out for Jesus. They'll do it because someone told them that's what a Christian's supposed to do. They'll do it because their best friend's going to do it. <laughs> They'll do it because they all feel they've fulfilled an obligation to God by going out there and being selfless. They'll do it just to show people how selfless they are. So the question has been for me, why in the world did Paul do it? What motivated Paul? He didn't have anybody speaking from a pulpit telling him to go out and do something radical for Christ, to be a selfless servant, to put up with suffering and do it by God's grace and do it in spite of whatever anybody told him. He never heard that. He never heard that sermon. What did he hear? When Paul accused people of Christ of being crazy in this very letter, he says this, for Christ's love. <laughs> Christ's love compels me. Christ's love, not what people think about me, not what people taught me, Christ's love compels he says this, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have what? Died. And he died for all that those who live might what? No longer live for themselves, but live for him. The word control can also be Translated compelled or forced, actually pressed. Christ's love for me presses me. The knowledge that Jesus died for me presses me into dying to myself. And it forces me to go out and selflessly be his messenger with his message. Hmm. The second set of verses are ones that Pastor John just ended his last sermon series with beautiful words, right? Those beautiful words. We just looked at Romans 8, and John laid it out beautifully. No condemnation, no separation. Message of the gospel, amen. Is there beauty in that? No condemnation, no separation. Paul relished in that. He says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And you know what the next words out of his mouth are? I'm speaking in the truth of Christ. I am not lying. That's quite a thing to swear by. My conscience bears my witness in the Holy Spirit. Something else to swear by. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul would have given up his own salvation. He'd given up his own life and death if he thought he would save the Jews. And what compelled him to do that? The gospel. The love of Christ compelled him to be radical, crazy, 
nuts. My challenge to you all is not to go out and do something radical and crazy for Christ. That's not my challenge. My challenge is for you to do what motivated Paul to do. That's experience the love of Christ. The love of Christ. To understand the gospel. And I I challenge you to do something not for a, a week, not for a month, not for a year, but for the rest of your lives. Preach the gospel to yourself. Every day. See what it cost. See who paid for it. See what the glories, blessings that you've received in the gospel. And some, not all of you, your lives will change. And you'll do something radical because of that. I'm going to recommend a couple of little books while I'm up here. Freedom from Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller, an old Tim Keller book. That's a good book. The other one here is a gospel primer by a guy named Milton Vincent. Um, I think the Timothy group is actually going to go through this book. I heard from John. It's a, it's a study of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. That's how we become credible witnesses, is we hear the gospel over and over and over, and we see the love that we have in Christ, and our lives change to be credible messengers with an absolutely extraordinary message. Let's pray. Lord, it's by your grace we've been saved. It's not of our own, but a gift from God. It's not by works. None of us. None of us can boast. But you saved us not so that the gospel ends with us, but so that we can be witnesses of the glory of Christ to others for the sake of his glory and the sake of their good. Help us to see Christ and his work for what it is, this greatest act of selflessness. Help us to resemble him who suffered for us, him who did not care. Help us to be, (laughs) yeah, help us to be citizens of the kingdom who look like a king. Help us to be Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.